Christ was made anguish that I might be joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Beaten down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. A thirst that I might drink. Tormented that I might be comforted. Made a shame that I might inherit glory. Enter darkness that I might have eternal light doesn't stop there. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have a crown of glory, bore a thorny crown that I might have a crown of glory, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, and expired that I might live forever." Well, as Brett mentioned, we find ourselves in the middle of Holy Week, the week each year that leads up to Easter Sunday. And whether or not you count yourself as a follower of Jesus, you might have found yourself wondering why such a big deal is made about this week. Why all the fuss about Holy Week each and every year? Which is a fair question to be sure. And my hope is that that list that I just finished reading, which comes from the prayer book, Valley of the Vision, begins to paint a picture of all that followers of Jesus receive as a result of the events that we celebrate this week. I mean, were you as bowled over by the totality of what we might receive in Christ Jesus as I was? Because you see, Christians believe that without God's incredible intervention in Jesus Christ, nothing on that list would have been possible. It wasn't happening, folks. We certainly weren't getting it done ourselves, I'll tell you that. No, we were dead in our sins, utterly powerless to save ourselves. But because Jesus came and because Jesus remained sinless and because Jesus lived the life that we all fell woefully short of, he was able, he had the opportunity to offer himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf, which he did, allowing himself to be arrested, beaten, and strung up on the cross. And we, as followers of Jesus, mark this event, Jesus' crucifixion on the Friday of Holy Week each year, calling it Good Friday which maybe this is obvious, right? This may be clear to you, but Good Friday was good from our perspective, right? Good Friday was good from our perspective. From Jesus' perspective, we might call it Bad Friday or Suffering Friday, maybe. And yes, of course, Jesus knew what he was making possible on that fateful Friday. And in that sense, it's true that it was still good for him. But experientially, experientially. I mean, think back upon the prayer that I began with, with all that it listed in relation to what Jesus experienced, what he suffered, all for us, for our good. Now, here's the kicker. Good Friday wouldn't actually have been good if not for what happened on Sunday. (laughs) Because that's the other thing Christians believe And it sets us wholly apart. Followers of Jesus believe something fundamentally different than all other world religions about their founder. Because we believe that Jesus, who is the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith, we believe that he really came, that he was really God, that he really came, that he really lived. And this is the kicker. He really died, he really was buried, and then he really rose again. 
He, it's not like Monty Python, right? Like sort of dead, almost dead. It's not, no, Jesus really was dead. That is what Christians believe. And then he wasn't. He rose again. And that is unique. That is the uniqueness of the Christian faith against all others. And one of my favorite spoken word artists is Propaganda. And in one of the poems, one of his poems, he has this incredible line, Jesus wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. I absolutely love this line. It's such a powerful word picture. If Jesus had stayed dead, if he had stayed in the grave, the check bounces. The debit card is declined. We're still dead in our sins. Good Friday isn't good. We're still separated from God because of our rebellion. We are still without hope. But the amazing claim of Easter Sunday is that the grave couldn't hold Jesus. The stone rolled away. Jesus awakened not just from a nap or not just from being unconscious, but he awakened from death itself. He died on the cross by way of asphyxiation. He couldn't breathe. That's how you die when you are crucified. And then just to be sure, they stabbed him in the side and blood and water flowed. Jesus wasn't sleeping. Jesus wasn't unconscious and then revived. Later, Jesus was dead, murdered, killed, executed. And then he wasn't. Easter Sunday made a way for us, a way from darkness to light, from death to life, away from enemy to child, away from the battlefield to the living room, all because of not just Jesus' death, but his resurrection as well, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So yes, it is so true that followers of Jesus do make a big deal out of this week. Maybe you're starting to see why. And maybe you don't agree, maybe you don't believe, maybe you don't confess, but Maybe this helps you see, oh, well, if they do believe that, that makes sense why they blow out this week each and every year because of what is offered to us in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, what is offered to us in Good Friday and Easter. Now, what I want to do this morning, I wanted to start big, right, with this sort of wide-angle view of everything that Christians believe about this week. We're sort of covering that at warp speed, but I wanted to start with this wide-angle, big view, but I also want to take a few moments with you to take that camera angle in a little bit. The bigness of all that's possible and all that's offered to us and all that Christians believe about Holy Week, but then I also want to zoom in. So I want to zoom in on one encounter between the risen Jesus and one of his first followers. One encounter. And this interaction happens in the Gospel of John, which is one of the accounts of Jesus' life on this earth. And the encounter, the story, the narrative that I want to look at you is found in John chapter 20, and it involves a woman named Mary. Now, there were a number of women in Jesus' orbit, in Jesus' life, that were named Mary. So it's important, including his mother, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it's important to know which Mary we are looking at here. And this particular Mary is named Mary Magdalene, which actually is not her last name, but rather it's a designation of where she's from, the city of Magleda. We don't know much about Mary Magdalene's backstory other than a short reference that we discover in a different account of Jesus' life, the gospel account of Luke. Luke 8.2 reveals to us that at some point, we don't know exactly when, but at some point, Jesus had cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene, which is like a lot of demons, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, my, like one demon feels overwhelming to me. Feels like that would probably be like a lot. 
But Mary Magdalene was suffering from seven of them. Seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I know that details like this, narratives like this, it can kind of hit our modern Western, modern Western sensibilities with suspicion. Like maybe you're there going, demons, really? Like, come on, really? Is that really? Like that happened? Okay. But I would caution us against that type of prideful view. Do we really know so much? Is it that hard to imagine that there might be a world beyond what we can see and touch? And basically every society and every culture and every other time other than ours is far more open to the possibility of the spiritual realm, of both good and evil in the spiritual realm. And we think they're all wrong? I don't know. I don't know. And what's more, follow this with me for Mary Magdalene. Luke 8, 2, as I said, reveals that Jesus saved her from seven demons. The rest of that short passage tells us that Mary became an incredibly dedicated disciple of Jesus, following him with fervency and even financially supporting the work of his ministry. And here's the logic of this as I track with it. Wouldn't you have done the same if someone saved you in that way? Like how much would you, how much would someone have to save you to just like uproot your life and dedicate everything you have to literally follow them and financially support them? It might be for me at this level, like I'm demon possessed, seven demons, somebody saves me, literally saves my life. Okay, it's like, well, there's nothing else to do, but sort of give over and follow this man forevermore. It just tracks for me. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. Mary's life had been a ruin, and when Jesus brought her out, she must have thought in her heart or maybe said with her lips even, me? I used to walk this street crying out half naked out of my mind. I can't be a child of God. But Jesus had shown her that, yes, she could be a child of God by grace alone. That is what made her who she was. In the Gospel of John, we see Mary Magdalene faithful to Jesus, even to the bitter so-called end. While many of Jesus' disciples fled in fear after Jesus was arrested, Mary Magdalene was one who was present at at the crucifixion. And can you imagine the pain of those moments for her? You owe your literal life to Jesus. You've given everything up to follow him. You have believed him to be the savior of the world that would deliver God's people from their oppression. And yet, now he dies. In the most painful and excruciating and embarrassing and shameful way possible. And you're there watching. What confusion. What fear. What sorrow. The Gospel of John also reports that not only was Mary at the crucifixion, but she was actually the first to see that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And y'all, this was a big stone. One of the other gospel accounts reports that there were several women that were going to the tomb to care for Jesus' body, and they're discussing amongst themselves the problem of the stone. It's so big, how are we going to move it? Well, maybe we can get the soldiers to do it, right? Because the Religious leaders had placed a garrison of soldiers, or if not a garrison, and at least a few soldiers outside of Jesus' tomb because they were worried that Jesus' followers would try to steal the body to tell people that he was actually alive. So she sees that the stone has been rolled away. She sees that the tomb is empty. She starts to freak out. She immediately goes back to where the other disciples are hiding because they're scared for their lives because the one that they were following has been killed. And chaos ensues. They know they didn't take the body, 
right? They didn't enact this crazy plan of taking the body so that they could mount a resistance and claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't do it, but the body's not there. So, of course, their first thought is somebody else took the body, which I just, like, enter into that with me for a moment. How horrifying would that be? Think to yourself back to the last time that you went to the graveyard to visit a loved one. You went to the graveside of a loved, a loved one, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, someone that you treasured and loved, and you had laid them into the ground. How horrified, how mortified would you be if you showed up at their gravesite and there was a massive hole in the ground? That is what Jesus' friends and followers are experiencing in this moment. Because dead people stay dead. They don't move after you put them there. Right? Dead people stay dead. People don't just rise from the dead and walk out of their grave. It doesn't happen. So imagine with me the horror. Imagine with me the grief, the sorrow, the confusion, the chaos that Mary and the other followers of Jesus are experiencing. Enter into that with me, if you will, and just feel that with me for a moment. Sometimes we can just speed by these details because we maybe know the story or... But really try to live in this for a moment and then, and then follow along with me. John 20, starting in verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. Of course she was. And as she wept, she stooped and she looked in. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe he hasn't been stolen. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, we've, we've covered this already, except for the piece about the two angels. And we don't know for sure, but from the interaction that they have, it seems likely to me that Mary didn't totally recognize them as angels. If she had, it seems likely that maybe her confusion would have subsided a little bit, right? But it doesn't subside. Maybe she thinks that these were part of the group that stole Jesus' body, right? And she's alone. She's a woman. She's vulnerable. So she's like, I got to get out of here. Watch what happens next. Mary turned to leave. Mary turned to leave and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Verse 15, dear woman, dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. And this, I just love this. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Mary, Jesus said. Now significantly, incredibly, this is the first encounter the resurrected Jesus has with anyone. Out of anyone, he picks Mary Magdalene, her of the seven demons. What an incredible honor for her. And she lives on in honor today, right? 2,000 plus years later, 6,000 miles away, we are sitting here hearing her story. Isn't that incredible? 
I absolutely love how Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible retells this beautiful encounter. Every time I read this to my boys, it just brings tears to my eyes. Hopefully I won't cry here. How could it be true? Jesus was definitely dead. How could he be alive? Just then, Jesus heard someone else in the garden. Perhaps it's the gardener, she thought. He'll know where Jesus' body is. I don't know where Jesus is, Mary said urgently. I can't find him. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was, and he had found her. Mary! Only one person said her name like that. She could hear her heart thumping. She turned around. She could just barely make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see, and she thought she was dreaming. But she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing. Jesus! Mary fell to the ground. Sudden tears filled her eyes and great sobs shook her whole body. And all she wanted in that moment was to cling to Jesus and never let go. Isn't that incredible? That line, she wasn't dreaming, she was seeing, gets me every single time. Because at first, right, didn't the NLT version that we read, it said she didn't recognize Jesus. She didn't see him immediately. And this is common, actually, in Jesus' occurrences of appearing to his followers. And there's some theories around that. It's Maybe he sort of held some of himself back. There's, he's like similar to who he was, but he's got a resurrected body, and so there's continuity and discontinuity. But I think maybe part of it for Mary is she is living very understandably out of the narrative that dead people stay dead. So I'm not going to recognize the dead person, right? Because Jesus was dead. Only he's not. He's there with you in the garden. And that other line too, right? Mary is so concerned that she can't find Jesus' dead body. She's freaking out about it. I can't find him. I can't find him. I can't find him. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was. And he had found her. Friends, here's the truth that I want to offer up to you from this incredible encounter between Jesus and Mary. Even when you don't see Jesus, he sees you. Even when you don't see Jesus, he sees you. Now, where do you need this truth most in your life right now? I imagine that all of us have a, a place. Maybe it's just a corner. Maybe it's a lot more than a corner. Maybe, it's your, maybe your whole life feels unseen right now. But where do you feel unseen? Where do you need the reminder and the truth that the risen Christ sees you even if you fail to recognize him, even if you fail to see him? Where do you need this in your life? My hope is that you are encouraged by this, that you take heart to this, is that even in those unseen spaces, maybe even especially in those unseen spaces, Jesus sees you and he wants to find you. He's coming after you to find you in those unseen spaces. You know, one of the first names that is ascribed in all of the Bible to God is the God who sees. The God who sees. We find it in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 16, and it comes on the lips of a woman named Hagar. Hagar lived an unseen life. A difficult life, mistreated, cast out, forgotten, 
by everyone but God. God shows up to Hagar. He ministers to her. He cares for her. He saves her. And she proclaims in Genesis 16, 13, I have seen the God who sees me. Is not Jesus the fulfillment of that? God in the flesh who sees Mary before she sees him, who finds Mary before she can find him because we won't find God without him first finding us. The God who sees, Jesus who sees. Well, the ending of the encounter between Jesus and Mary in John chapter 20 is really interesting. Understandably, Mary falls at the feet of Jesus and she begins to cling desperately to him. Sort of like, I lost you once and now I'm never letting you go, right? This was, I'm totally dating myself, but homeward bound? No, okay. Right, movie from when I was a kid and the dogs get lost. But at the end, major spoiler alert, I'm sorry. It's been out for like 30 years. The dogs make it back home, y'all. And the dog comes bounding up, right? They'll find there's like three dogs that get lost, two dogs and a cat. And the final dog, right, comes bounding up over the hill. And what, what do you think the boy does, right? Clings to him. He's never letting that dog go again. Once you were lost, now you are found. I mean, this is Mary with Jesus. I thought I lost you. And she clings to him. And so kind of surprisingly, Jesus tells her not to cling to him. People are confused by this. Why would he do that? Well, here's Tim Keller again. I think he does a good job explaining what we think is happening here. What Jesus is saying to Mary could be paraphrased like this. Mary, I know why you're clinging so tightly to me. You were grieving over the loss of our relationship, and now you are thinking that you will grab me and never let yourself be parted from me. But you don't understand. This isn't over yet. I've got more work to do. When I ascend to the Father and sit at his right hand and send the Spirit, then everyone in the world who believes in me will be able to have personal intimacy with me, just like you're having with me right now. But it won't just be you. It'll be literally everyone in the world who believes in me. Through the Spirit, through the Spirit, I will be able to come to you, to commune with you in love, to have my presence with me, let, within you. Let me go to the Father, and you and all who seek it will have fellowship with me beyond anything that you can imagine. Now, there's a bit of a paradox in what Jesus is saying here to Mary. He has to go away in order to come closer to her than he has ever been. Yes, it is undeniably true. I can't deny this, that the way that Jesus sees us is different than the way that Jesus saw Mary. They had a physical, she got to live with him, travel with him, minister with him, get to know him in the flesh. When he rose from the dead, this, right, this is the first encounter. She gets to be with him in the garden. She gets to actually wrap her arms around him and see him with her eyes. I understand it's different. And sometimes the truth that Jesus sees you, even when you don't see him, it, it maybe doesn't feel as solid as you need it, right? Like it can be easy for us to get jealous of Mary. Oh, I would never doubt if I could have lived Mary's life. I would never have doubted after that. And they did go on to live remarkable lives of sacrifice, to get this Christianity thing up and off the ground. And by the way, here we are 2,000 years later and a few billion followers as well. 
They did do some remarkable things because of the assuredness of what they had experienced. So I understand that it's different. But when we give in to jealousy, what we're doing is diminishing the power of the Spirit. We're just diminishing the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't done yet at this point. He's got more work to do, right? He reveals himself over the course of the next few weeks to a few hundred of his followers. So it wasn't just one woman's story. It wasn't even just a few disciples' stories. There was a few hundred of Jesus' first followers who saw him. Some of them were able to touch him and cling to him to know that he was dead and now he's alive. And then what did he say to them, right, as he left? confusingly probably, because they didn't know fully all that would it mean about the Spirit coming. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. And then he ascended to the Father, and they're still scared. They're still in the locked room. They're still not doing what he asked them to do, to go out and make disciples of all nations, and then he sends the Spirit. And immediately, the same day, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus. And they actually start to go out and do what it is that he asked them to do. And that same power is what dwells inside each and every one of Jesus' followers. So let's not diminish the power of the Spirit. We are never alone because he goes with us always if we have given over our lives to him. We are always seen because he is with us always. Jesus saw Mary when she didn't see him. I'm so glad that Mary listened to Jesus and let him go. Because she did, we received the benefit. We received the gift. Jesus was able to go to heaven. Jesus was able to reign now at the right hand of the Father and send his spirit to be with us, to see us, to comfort us, to help us. Jesus saw Mary even when she didn't see him, and he sees us when we fail to see him as well. And oh my, oh my, do I fail in my own life to see him. I give in to fear. I give in to anxiety, to worry, because I feel like I can't do it, or like I'm not enough, or that I'll fail, or that I'm too tired, or that I'm alone. That's me. Maybe that's you as well. And in those moments, what my heart needs is this truth. Even when you don't see Jesus, even when I don't see Jesus, he sees us, and he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus, God himself, came to earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He then laid that life down as a sacrifice on our behalf. He was killed, murdered on a cross, Good Friday. And then three days later, he walked out of that grave, risen to new life again, Easter Sunday. He ascended to heaven, sent his spirit so that he could be with us always, always seeing us, and now reigns at the right hand of the Father. This is Holy Week. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you that you see us even when we don't see you. Thank you that you are the God who sees, and thank you that, thank you, that you sent Jesus. You didn't leave us dead in our sins, but you sent Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, to offer us a pathway to new life, and new life beyond the grave, but new life that begins now, new life where we can experience comfort and joy and peace even in the midst of difficult circumstances because Jesus, by way of his Spirit, is with us, dwelling inside of us, seeing us in our unseen places. 
I know we all have those, Lord, and I pray for each and every student and employee and prospective student, everyone in this room, Lord, may they be comforted by the truth that the risen Christ, by way of his spirit, sees us in all of our unseen places. Thank you for Holy Week. May we reflect upon its truths and may they ingrain themselves deep in our hearts. We're grateful for you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior who sees us. Amen. Well, there is a call and response tradition uh, around this time of year, and it's one of my favorite things. And so I want to teach it to you as our benediction, our good and final word. And it's kind of debated where this phrase comes from. There's another great story in Luke 24. If you're interested in reading more stories uh, like the one we read today about Jesus revealing himself to his followers, go read the encounter in Luke 24. It's one of the best evidences as well that Jesus wasn't just like knocked unconscious, which by the way is something that people have said. Like nobody, no serious scholar denies that Jesus was a real person who lived on this earth, which means we have to do something with him. And it means that we have to do something with these multitude accounts that we have of the fact that he was dead and then like a bunch of people saw him alive again. And so serious scholars in the past, not so much anymore, have made the claim that Jesus didn't actually die. Well, in Luke 24, Jesus like goes on a seven mile walk to Emmaus. It's like, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think you do that after you get stabbed in the side if you don't really die and then like really come back in a resurrected and better body. So anyway, in this encounter between Jesus and two of his followers, uh, he is obscured again and, uh, and he eventually reveals himself. And at some point they report to others and say, Jesus is risen indeed. Jesus is risen indeed. And actually some other people think this call and response comes from Mary Magdalene who at some point says, Jesus is risen. And so the call and response is this. The, the leader, me, says, he is risen. And the congregation, the, those that are present here at chapel this morning, responds together, he is risen indeed. Can we do that now? And can it be better than the good morning that you gave Brett? How about that? And then after that, you will be dismissed. Double credit chapel. Woo! Yeah. I love you all. I'm grateful for you all. Here it is. He is risen. Let's try it one more time. He is risen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you so much for coming. There'll be iPads for you to scan.